One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like radios, spaghetti and farmers. Sam, I want to do the history of spaghetti. Hmm, I'm not sure what I'll do, but I'm eating an awful lot of spaghetti at the moment, (laughs) and I want to find out more. Or we could do pickles, trickles and sickles, tickles... Popsicles and tricycles. <laughs> I, I really think we should do the history of tickles, or maybe maybe the history of happiness. Okay. That would be a good one. Mm. I, I feel now that it's sort of summer and the world is sort of opening up again, I feel the world is a good place. However, for the moment, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of sludge is in fact all about travel, festivals, Saxon house building. It's also about the trenches and World War One. It's all about the Schlieffen plan, digging of trenches, Western Front trench warfare, life in the trenches. It, I could go on. Or that the history of backstabbers is in fact all about the Bolsheviks and the rise of Stalin. And that was one of our homeschooling episodes that we did several months ago when the schools were all closed. But as I said, now everything is open. Yeah, and if you ever want to do more about the history of backstabbers, just read everything you can about the Russian Revolution. It's fantastic. Um, You're probably wondering who is doing all of this uh, wonderful introductions, my, who my fellow presenter is. Let me just say that if history, or if the story of history was actually all about a small group of people who wouldn't let anyone else join in, this man would blow off the doors, knock down the walls. He would bring his dynamite of justice to the war for historical democracy and make certain that history was free for all. It was about everyone and everything that has ever existed. He is the champion of justice for history itself, the mighty professor extraordinaire of early modern British history at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. Now, I'm not sure my one makes entire sense but i'll do it and then <laughs> you can to. and then you can see uh, so the man not sitting opposite me because we are still social distancing even as the world is dawning back into life well let's just say if he were a clique related historian he'd only be the head honcho of the magic circle that clique of magical know-how and wizardry, so breathtaking are his historical powers, so legendary and light-fingered are his antics with the historical records. Indeed, there is no illusion about his resurrection of the past. It's your friend and mine across town, the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. I think it did just about work. 
<laughs> Very the magic, clever, cir- I thought. magic circle is a sort of little clique of magicians all together, mm. utterly, utterly secret. They can't divulge any anything about their 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 art. My uncle, Uncle Peter, uh, my father's younger brother, is in fact a member of the magic circle. Makes you wonder how the hell they kind of everyone learns all the tricks if you can't tell anyone how you do it. I think you share them uh, within the circle, but you're not allowed to share them outside. So they have libraries and props and all sorts of things that you can you can access. And I may be talking a little bit about that later on. Ah. Well, um, you but probably we're doing, we're doing we are, cliques. We're doing yes. cliques. Yeah, we are. We are doing cliques. Uh, it was my idea. Um, I've just been doing some stuff on the French Revolution, um, and. Uh, the Illuminati as well recently. So Ooh. I've decided that we could combine the two by talking about cliques. But um, yeah, you know, off the top of your head, James, I mean, I suppose the thing that struck me was it's to do with um, secrecy. It's to do with um, power, kind of wielding power as well. There's, a, there's certainly a, an important aspect of it to that, and actually, the more you think about it, um, cliques are—they're—they're they're, they're important throughout history. They certainly are. I had two signposts for this. Uh, one was uh, teenage cliques or childhood cliques. In fact, um, children being very sort of secretive and careful about their friends and not letting other people join in. So that was one of my sort of positions to orient me. The other was thinking about early modern politics and think about factions, factional politics, sort of small groups of people who are aligned. But the more I started thinking about it, the more it expanded as a historical topic that needed to be unpacked. And you can think about it from a sociological perspective. Of course you can. Uh, You can think about the formation of cliques, the rules, the membership, the organisation, the networks, the social and cultural impact of them, those who are in and out. Think about the Bullingdon Club, for example, as a as a particular clique. There are school groups that are very cliquey, but you also might extend it to cabals, you know, and think about the cabal ministry of somebody like Charles II. Uh, and the sort of this sort of little gang of, of of high ministers that he had, you could think about it in terms of gangs and secret societies. So it runs the whole gamut of of sort of things that you can think about. Uh, if we're thinking about gangs, you can go through things like the mafia, narcos, street gangs, prison gangs. Uh, that can connect us to uh, secret codes and writing in in prisons. Um, it can connect us to uh, Queen of the South, which is a brilliant series that I'm watching on Netflix at the moment. Uh, having finished Snowfall uh, in recent weeks, I needed something else to occupy my uh, fevered mind in the evenings. And I've landed on Queen of the South, which is all about uh, drugs gangs and drugs cartels, which, of course, are cliques. Um, but I was also thinking about factions at the Hindrishan court. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I'm going to talk a little bit also about adolescent popular culture in America, in American high schools, and think about all the different cliques that they have there and how that is represented through the cinema, from things like films like Grease all the way through things like Pretty in Pink, Say Anything, or, you know, to films today like Twilight, where we have the the Cullens as a sort of vampire clique, uh, this sort of uber-trendy, uber-cool uh, deadly group of teenagers at high school. 
So I think that's and maybe there's some magic in there as well, Sam. So quite a lot to get your to get your your historical <clears throat> teeth into, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I like the idea of thinking about gangs. Like, it's exactly the same with me. The more I thought about it, the more I realised there, there were so many different angles you could do. I was thinking about um, A Clockwork Orange. Um, you're talking about films, uh, which is a great example of a, a male clique. So also think about, you know, male the difference between male cliques and female cliques and how they're represented. You've got A Clockwork Orange, you've got a group of young men, um, teenagers particularly, um, who form an association through brutality, violence, they rob, they rape, they kill. And in that film, it, it really does explore aspects which are so crucial to the way that cliques operate and the problems that they have. There's tensions, there's infighting, challenges for dominance, there's uh, a desire for power, and it really makes you think about gang mentality and free will. And I always find watching things like that really, really helpful because you can then... It encourages you to think about the past in different ways. Um, so when I'm going to go on to talk about the uh, um, the Jacobins uh, in, in the um, in the French Revolution, a very small minority of people, the Committee for Public Safety, who ended up controlling everything. Um, and the moment you start talking about control and controlling everything, what I quickly moved on to was thinking about conspiracy theories, which I've always been slightly fascinated by. Um, and was recently doing an interview for a German documentary about uh, various conspiracies over time. And I was asked right at the beginning of the uh, interview about what a conspiracy theory was, which is how it got me you know, thinking about cliques and cabals. Because one of the, one of the key things about conspiracy theories is that they're... they're You've got, you've got something that's either unexplainable or it's very, very difficult to explain. And there is a belief that there is a sinister and or sort of powerful group of people responsible for whatever that might be. And it's this small group and it's very unclear how you might join that group or who exactly they are. Um, and that, I think, is really at the heart of what a conspiracy theory is. I was also thinking about it in terms of a rejection of the accept, sort of commonly accepted narrative of events. So um, a, a load of historians might do some research and they say pretty much this is what we think happened. And then that, that, it's, that understanding of the event is rejected. So I think the conspiracy has a lot to do with rejection of, um, of learning and education as well. Oh, like, like Trump's loss of the election, which the current conspiracy theory is that it's all to do with the Italians... Blocking electronic voting. That's what really? I learned this week. Yes, apparently. <laughs> apparently. I mean, why? Yes, I mean, they're, they're, yes, Trump has been out on the warpath again, um, parading his utter nonsense. Uh, yeah. Not to get political, but frankly, uh, it is rubbish. Well, it's um, actually, you know, some part of a conspiracy theory is often to do with the... Um, the, the theory itself being somehow thrilling or like, oh, wouldn't it be extraordinary if that was actually true? Uh, and I think that that applies a lot to a lot of the Trumpian politics, doesn't it? Yes, that and and megalomania, um, self-obsession, um, just lying, um, you know, underhand, immoral. Um, you know, I could go on. I could go <laughs> on. Um, wait a minute. I was um, uh, talking about the Illuminati. I was asked to talk a little bit about the Illuminati. The Illuminati is really, really interesting. So you've got the, the kind of the modern conspiracy theory is that 
the scale of it is what's so kind of astonishing is that all of world affairs are basically controlled by a secretive cabal of people called the Illuminati. And at the same time, we do know that there was a group of people, particularly in Germany, Bavaria, in the 1770s. Um, so around the time of the you know kind of the outbreak of the American Revolution, and, and um, they're inspired by the Enlightenment. They're 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 concerned about religious influence and in public life. They're concerned about the abuse of state power. And what they do is they get together in secret because they're trying to change the world according to their Enlightenment principles. They want it, everyone to be responsible. They want education. Um, these kind of, you know, really, really sort of impressive ideals. But because they're taking on established religions and established states, they have to do it in secret. Nonetheless, the goals are for the good of humanity as they conceive it. And the bigger irony being is that the understanding of the modern Illuminati conspiracy, which is complete nonsense, is that there is a secretive cabal of people who are working only for themselves. And there's a kind of a deep irony there at the whole purpose of 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 this conspiracy theory and um, it proves that the believers need to read a bit more about their history anyway um yes the, the illuminati and conspiracy and that's what it's what just one of many different examples of it i was actually very interested about one particular aspect of the illuminati and that is how they get in a bit of a muddle when the french revolution happens so you think about this as the era of enlightenment and the French Revolution, when that breaks out, these guys, they really are changing the world order. They're not sitting around in secret societies just talking about it. Yes, it did start off as nothing but ideas and, and opinions. But then by the time the revolution breaks out, they're actually trying to change the world in the streets. They're doing it with bullets and swords and knives. It's completely terrifying and that they're very much turning the world upside down. And because the Illuminati... Uh, of of Bavaria, the the original Illuminati, are basing a lot of their ideas and principles on Enlightenment ideas and principles, new ways of thinking about the world. They get caught up in this, uh, in the French Revolution, the reputation of the French Revolution, and then the Illuminati get banned and then they get driven underground. And that kind of starts a sort of spiralling history of them being secretive, then more underground, then more secretive. Then what are they doing? Who are they? What are they working for? And all of these unanswered questions, which has led to the to the nonsense of today. But the principle behind it was that they were they were a clique. They were a, a, a secretive group of people and they were deliberately trying to change the way that the world operated. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Excellent, Sam. Excellent. Right. Well, I'm going to take us from the sort of Enlightenment and the French Revolution uh, back in time uh, to the 1500s in England and to the court of Henry VIII, because I'm going to look at cliques in a different way. I'm going to consider political factions. In other words, these are groups of people who seek objectives in primarily personal terms. They form together in sort of socio-political groups in order to get things done. And there is a world of historical debate about the extent and nature and scope and power and significance of factions in Tudor England and Tudor politics. And you can see it running through debates about Henry VIII and through, uh, in particular, about debates about Elizabeth I and power. I do not want to get bogged down in those sort of minutiae historiographical debates. However, what I want to argue is that the 16th century is a period, particularly the reign of Henry VIII, a period of really intense political infighting, and particularly in the 1530s. And what you've got there connected, of course, to a rather sort of tyrannical king, uh, sort of megalomaniac, egotistical, uh, whatever, what you will. You've got a really interesting king here who is actually quite a, quite a fickle character. And it actually it creates conditions within the early 16th century in England, where factions can actually flourish. Um, at the same time, not only do you have the sort of weird personality of Henry VIII, you've also got the Reformation going on. You've got the Reformation going on, which is, of course, incredibly ideological. Uh, and we have to see, we have to understand that religion at this period is not the sort of... It, we're not talking about the kind of secular age that many of us live in today. We're talking about, you know, something that was deeply felt by people and actually, you know, was something that they were prepared to die for, for their faith and, 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 and their ambitions. And running alongside that was also that there was a lot of wealth up for grabs. A lot of the wealth was contained within the church... And so there was a sort of an ideological sort of argument about the place and significance of the church. But then there was also a very sort of acquisitive, very practical um, sort of undercurrent running through, which basically was people wanting the church's wealth. And so what this led to was a really heady concoction of um, personality and politics, religious ideology and land and power and influence up for grabs. And what this meant then was actually that factions were rife. And we can see this from Henry VII's reign forward. Henry VII was somebody who wasn't particularly intimate with his with his courtiers. Steve Gunn argues that he had a, a pretty sort of yeah, a pretty sort of vibrant court, but actually managed to stay above factions um, and actually worked in different ways. This changes when we get Henry VIII in, and there is a real sort of transformation to a politics of intimacy in David Starkey's view, where we have a range of favourites, boon companions, sort of young, sort of aristocratic uh, military types who are the pals of, of Henry VIII, um, and we have a series of factions throughout the reign. 
Um, we can think about we can think about dividing it up into different periods. We can think about it in terms of the young Henry VIII, who takes power, wasn't supposed to be king um, until his brother Arthur died. Then he comes into comes to the throne. Um, and he has a sort of group of, of young aristocratic men around him. Um, they are, you know, his close sort of uh, close sort of political intimates. Uh, and most of the policy was dominated by Cardinal Wolsey in the first sort of half of Henry VIII's reign. And, and basically factions are not particularly influential during this period. We then see a challenge to Wolsey and Wolsey himself is brought down not only by his inability to get a divorce for Henry VIII, but also that meant that he was he was sort of fair game for other people um, wanting to sort of, you know, put their people around Henry VIII and, and, and try and influence him. And ultimately it was factions that brought down um, Wolsey. We can also see factions as part of the explanation for the rise. So the sort of rise of Anne Boleyn and then her latter fall from power. Uh, it was also factions that brought down uh, Thomas Cromwell, you know, who, who was actually part of, of the sort of group that brought, Wol that brought Wolsey down, then came to um, power on the back of the sort of rise of the Boleyns, and then in fact turned against the Boleyns, swapped sides, and was was part of the the faction that led to Anne Boleyn's fall. If we also have a look at the last years of Henry VIII's reign, when he's sort of waning in powers, um, we then see that he's being manipulated by the Seymours and the Howards, and people are jockeying for power about what's going to happen, uh, and the placing of the boy king Edward VI on the throne. And we've talked about that uh, in the past. But if you have a look in particular at the case of Anne Boleyn, uh, I, we've spoken about the fall of Anne Boleyn in the past, but if you have a look here, it's really interesting how particular faction groups form for a particular purpose. So what you have is basically a, a range of disparate figures coalescing because they want to destroy Anne Boleyn. And the whole thing is all about whether Anne Boleyn has committed adultery and that this you know, this could be used against her to sort of bring her, her down and lead to her execution. Um, and we've got a whole range of people who are, who sort of coalesce together to remove her. People like the Buckingham faction, the brothers of Jane Seymour, Edward and Thomas, Nicholas Carew, uh, the master of the horse. These are her, her enemies. So we also have the Courtney allies who are committed to Catherine of Aragon, who are very different from the, the, the Seymours, but they group together. Cromwell, of course, is there in the initial stages on her side, um, but then moves over uh, against her. Uh, those who are in the sort of pro-Berlin faction are her, her father and her brother, Viscount Rochford. Uh, Cromwell, you know, who we've talked about, who that moves against her. And people like Thomas Wyatt, Francis Bryan, Henry Tom Norris uh, and William Brereton. So it's actually a, quite a, a sort of an odd coalition of people for and against her. So it's a loose coalition which breaks apart with the with the change of sides of, of Cromwell. And I think what this ultimately leads to is her condemnation, her execution. Uh, Henry sort of then quickly remarries. Um, 
But what it says about the nature of factions at the court of Henry VIII is really interesting. Firstly, that they are really varied, that actually what you have is temporary coalitions of people who get together about particular issues. So they're not these kind of long-standing cliques. They vary in, in length of duration and also in size. Some of them are ideologically minded. So, so some people are getting involved for ideological purposes. So if we think about the people who are anti-Anne Boleyn, some of that is about religion. So it's about being pro the the conservative religion, pro-Catherine of Aragon, who is, who is Spanish Catholic. Um, but also it's about people being really practical and, you know, aspiring for power. So that's another thing that sort of pushes them. So the idea that you join a faction because you are going to get some kind of patronage reward out of it. So the other fourth point is that they're not particularly rigid. So they're fluctuating. Um, and that basically there isn't a, a grand coalition locked in combat. However, they are incredibly destructive to politics. Um, and actually, I think in, in Henry's reign, the fact that Henry you know, turns on people, that Henry can be manipulated, means that factions can be incredibly deadly. So there we are, Sam. Uh, factions at the court of Henry VIII. Fascinating stuff. And you can just go into more and more and more depth there, can't you? It's like um, it's opening a, like a, a room full of crazy people doing crazy stuff. And the, the, the depth of historical research is fantastic, isn't it? You can, you can find out everything you want. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm. Um, I just want to talk a bit about the French Revolution, just because uh, my thinking about the Illuminati uh, kind of drew me to it, this idea of people changing the world. Um, because there is a really great example of a clique at the heart of the French Revolution. So you need to think about the the, the origins of the French Revolution right at the beginning. Um, so, you know, late 1793, maybe uh, early 1794, you've got the French Republic's really kind of tottering. Um, it's established itself, but it's very uncertain. And it has these amazing humanitarian, humanitarian ideals very much at its heart, but then has to survive. It has to cope with an enormous influx of external aggression. So Greece is surrounded by enemies. You've got the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Prussia, Spain, Portugal, and of course, Britain. They unite themselves and form a coalition against the new republic. But at the same time, you need to think about what's happening within French society, where you've got all of these extraordinary forces, um, reasons, movements causing division um, within them, politics, religion, class, uh, family, and those are just, just some of them. So you've got these external threats, and also it's complete chaos within France. And it's into this sort of crazy soup that the Jacobins arrive, and they're... Uh, a ruthless and radical political faction, and they decide to to do something remarkable. They 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 decide to save the humanitarian ideals of the French Revolution of the of this early Republic, and they do it through a program of institutionalized fear, um, sustained violence, and an absence of justice. And one way the ways of looking at this is to think about the. The sort of the infrastructure of the reign of terror and exactly how they go about doing it. And there are some really key moments in this. Um, in October 1792,
they set up something called the Committee of General Security. What I love about this period of the French Revolution is how they have all these such bland administrative names and actually it hides something much more sinister. So this Committee of General Security is established and it was um, it, it takes responsibility for, for policing and the administration of justice. Um, and it is reduced from 30 deputies to just 12 at the beginning of 1793. So that's when the terror is really starting to, to just well, the, the, the establishments, all the, all the things that needed to be in place for the terror to happen is just starting to happen. So you've got the Committee for General Security and you need to bear in mind that it's reduced from 30 deputies to 12. March 1793, you have 82 uh, representatives on mission, they're called, and they are appointed to work just in pairs, just two people. And they travel across France. And they're ensuring loyalty and the effective administrative functioning of the new departments. And what they do is they try and make sure that public order is maintained. And they have the power to arrest anyone who is considered suspect. Um, and they can, uh, they're there to guarantee food supplies and to, to supervise tax levies, essentially. Um, and also to guarantee the morale of troops and the loyalty of generals. Incredibly powerful people, but just working in pairs. And throughout all of this, as I read through, just focus on the, the small number of people. March 1793, they then establish something called a revolutionary tribunal. And what they do is they try the counter-revolutionaries. So you've got people walking around accusing people of being counter-revolutionaries. And then they get sent to the revolutionary tribunal. And this is comprised of just five judges, of whom three, only three, had to be present or had to be in agreement to pass a sentence. So the jury, so the, the legal side of it there has also changed. Um, now, one of the most important things about all of this is the establishment of the Committee of Public Safety. And this is in April 1793. Again, focus on the bland administrative friend. The Committee for Public Safety uh, then spent uh, the next year basically making sure that the public were as endangered as was possible. Nonetheless, they're responsible for... Um, the conduct of the war, diplomacy, supplies, control of the army and the application of the revolutionary laws. And the important thing here is that oh, this this they, they have authority over the Committee of General uh, Security, which I talked about at the beginning. But the Committee for Public Safety consists of just nine people and they're elected monthly by the National Convention and their meetings are closed to outsiders. So what you've got here is the the whole of the the power of the revolution is being placed firmly into the hands of a a faction of a, of a clique of politicians who've deliberately made the the, the 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 those who control power as small a group as possible. Now by the following spring, which is when it all ends, and Maximilien Robespierre, who was once a, a lawyer and came to be in control, uh, he himself is executed. But by then. About 16,000 people have been officially guillotined um, and perhaps 40,000 more without any record being kept. And at the same time, there are people uh, waging war throughout France. And they reckon about 200,000 people died throughout France because of the chaos caused by this clique, um, this, this, this small body of men 
known as the Committee of Public Safety, who ruled France during the Reign of Terror. It's actually worth just thinking briefly about what Robespierre, this guy who came, once a lawyer who came to be in charge of it, just before he was voted in to to, to be a member of the Committee for Public Safety, he, he got picked up his pen or his quill and he wrote down, how can we end the civil war? And this is what he wrote. By punishing traitors and conspirators, especially those deputies and administrators who are to blame. By sending patriot troops under patriot leaders to reduce the aristocrats of Lyon, Marseille, Toulon, the Vendée, the Jura and all other districts where the banner of royalism and rebellion has been raised. And by making a terrible example of all the criminals who have outraged liberty and spilt the blood of patriots. So there we go. With the, the the death of Robespierre, who was once a caring lawyer, that ends the reign of terror. Um, one of the most striking periods in history, where uh, the fate of of so many has been in the hands of so few. Oh, these cliques we're talking about, Sam, they're so deadly. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to take us in a different direction now, and I'm going to talk about the magic circle, and I'm going to end up with a with a magic kettle. You're going to love this. A magic kettle. So the magic circle uh, was founded in 1905. So it's an organisation that was set up to for magicians, illusionists, conjurers, to basically allow them to get together and swap ideas and, and also to keep their craft safe i mean partly they are they're, they're entertainers and they wanted they wanted to meet together and they wanted to be able to share their their secrets um and and basically be supportive of each other but not to allow those secrets get out uh and their motto was indigenous privata loci which roughly uh the rough translation of this is keep your mouth shut um, <laughs> basically Very good. so they 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 met um, for the first time in 1905, and there were about 23 amateur and professional musicians who met in London's Soho district in Pinoli's restaurant, and they decided to form a magic society. And the first two two main important people um, was the first president was David Devant, who's a, what, supposed to be one of the most um, important magicians of the 20th century. Uh, we'll come to him later on. And then uh, his partner, a man called John Neville Maskelin, uh, whose grandson, um, Jasper, uh, was involved in all of the sort of magic trickery in World War Two. He was the person who was involved in those sort of ingenious devices to stop people being able to see um, British shipping and that sort of thing. So a very clever, very clever guy he was employed by, you know, by by the government and to, for the for the war effort. But anyway, these his his great grandfather, um, well, his grandfather uh, and Devant sort of were the a team that sort of set this up. And Maskelin uh, was also uh, the inventor of the first uh, payable lavatory. Um, so the idea behind this was that when you needed to go to the toilet, um, you had to put a penny in a slot which would open the door and you would be able to get in, which is where the expression um, spend a penny comes from. Um, anyway, the headquarters of this society are in in Camden uh, near Euston Station and they are fascinating. I haven't been there myself but I've read um, accounts of them. Simon Singh in his book on magic 
um, refers to having been given a guided tour around it, which is actually something quite rare for a journalist to be able to get in. But it's got a it's got a library in there, and get this the the sections in the library are labelled things like mentalism, memory, occult, and fortune telling. Um, and there's another section labelled ventriloquism, hypnotism, and allied arts. Um, and there are, you know, all, this is full of all sorts of books uh, about magic. There's also a museum, uh, and the museum sounds absolutely fascinating uh, because it's got all sorts of props in it. So the building is sort of covered in this, and it includes things like Harry Houdini's handcuffs, uh, Morris Fogel's x-rays and <laughs> you may think oh what Boris Fogel's x-rays <laughs> this was a guy who attempted to catch a bullet in his teeth and what the x-rays show is the bullets <laughs> that he didn't manage to catch in his teeth but are in fact lodged in his chest and hip <laughs> um, there's also within this there's also an original sooty uh because Harry Corbett the the first sort of um Puppeteer of Sooty um, it was a member of the Magic Circle, including Sooty himself. So there's all of that sort of stuff there. Uh, Prince Charles, uh, Prince of Wales, uh, was also uh, initiated into it. Um, and there's the set of cups and balls that he used when he took his Magic Circle exam in, in 1975. Um, there's also a, a circular uh, that goes around. Um the um you know there's a a newsletter that goes around that um you know and still continues today giving all sorts of secrets but central to this clique is the idea that you do not divulge things but of course um the in order to make money, some of the sort of founding fathers of this clique published books about tricks <laughs> in magic, including Devant's own um, book called Tricks for Everyone, uh, for which he was asked to leave the society. <laughs> <laughs> and and he came back. He, came, he he was sort of asked to come back a year later, and then expelled again <laughs> oh. because he he launched another thing. But the, to end with, I just want to talk a little bit about some of the tricks that he kept secret. Uh, that were extremely funny. Um, and he was actually a really famous m magician and very successful and one of the first magicians who appeared at the Royal Command performances. And there's an anecdote about him being sort of so funny that he made Queen Alexandra laugh so loudly at a, a, a trick routine called A Boy, Girl and Eggs. Uh, which basically involved him picking up somebody from the the audience who would come out and then had to keep track of a massive number of eggs from which he plucked out of a, an empty hat. And perhaps most famous of his routines was something called the magic kettle trick. And get this, this magic kettle, uh, with the aid of magic, would, on demand, produce any alcoholic beverage called for by the audience um a fitting a fitting thing to end on sam love it love it so there we are the, the history of cliques we haven't had time to talk about teenage cliques in american high schools and movies um but you know but go out and have a look at at 
pretty in pink and think about. Well, I tell you what, James. Why the don't we do the groups? history of teenagers? We'll do that oh, next week. Oh, let's do the history of teenagers. That Boom. sounds excellent. Yeah. All right. You got let's it. Let's do that. Happy days. Teenagers. Okay, guys. Yeah. Brilliant. Then you're not going to miss out. Thank you all so much for listening. Do please check us all out on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis, and if you like maritime and naval history, I didn't talk about any today. Uh, do please check out the Mariners Mirror podcast. Oh, it's excellent, by the way. You should all look for it. There's a, there is a special, a very important guest coming out soon, so my Instagram feed tells me. Uh, you can follow me on at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram. We are also on Facebook. We have a lovely website, which you should check out, historiesoftheunexpected.com. And we also have a Patreon page. So if you are feeling in any way generous um, and want to support what we're doing, uh, check us out there as well. That would be great, guys. Thank you so much for listening. As always, see you soon. Bye. Take care, everyone. Ciao.